This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. My name's Alan Weiner. Uh, I um, am a senior lecturer in law at the law school and have affiliations with uh, pretty much all of the centers um, at the Freeman Smokely Institute. And I'm also the co-director of the Stanford Center on International Conflict and Negotiation. And most of us, uh, uh, at least the Stanford, the locals on this panel are all affiliates of the Stanford Center on International Conflict and Negotiation. And I think we'll like to give you a chance to think about the issues today uh, in view of the framework or the analytic uh, lens that we use within SCICN. Of course, we have to quickly move to acronyms uh, since we are <laughs> at FSI. Um, so I have two tasks, which I'm uh, very, very happy to uh, exercise or discharge today. The first is to introduce my colleagues on the panel. Um, and then the second is to just very, very quickly introduce the themes of our panel today. And I'm going to just introduce everybody now in the order in which people will be speaking. So first, on my far right, and you shouldn't read anything into that, uh, <laughs> is Lee Ross, um, who is in fact the co-founder of the Stanford Center on Conflict and Negotiation. He's also uh, the Federal Credit Union Professor of Social Psychology at Stanford University. He teaches courses here on the application of social psychology to bargaining, negotiation, conflict resolution, and broader public policy issues. He is the co-author uh, with uh, Richard Nesbitt of Human Inference and uh, The Person and Situation, and has written over 100 chapters and art, uh, kind of refereed scholarly articles, which is actually pretty depressing um, for those of us um, who are newer to the discipline, to sort of imagine what it would take uh, to do that. Um, uh, Lee's research focuses on biases in human inference, judgment, and decision-making, especially on the cognitive, perceptional, and motivational biases that lead people to misinterpret one another's behavior and that create particular barriers to dispute resolution and the implementation of peace agreements. He's also participated in what we call Track 2 Diplomacy uh, and public peace processes in the Middle East, the Caucasus, and Northern Ireland, and has also done applied work in relation to global warming, healthcare, social security choices, and the academic challenges facing minority students and women in science. Uh, on my left, uh, the person who will speak second is my colleague Byron Bland, who is the associate director of the Stanford Center on International uh, Stanford Center on International Conflict and Negotiation. Now, Byron is a man who's really here uh, to a certain extent um, uh, in uh, sort of uh, in a little bit of a masquerade. Uh, it turns out he is in fact uh, an ordained uh, Presbyterian minister and a Georgian, um, that is to say from the U.S. South, not from the Caucasus region. Um, and he served on the Stanford campus for 18 years as a chaplain. Um, he left that post in 1994 to concentrate on peacemaking efforts in Northern Ireland. His more recent work concerns the politics of reconciliation in divided societies. He's currently involved in a research project exploring the social and political dynamics of reconciliation with an organization known as Community Dialogue, which is a grassroots dialogue organization in Northern Ireland. He's also working with community groups and civil leaders in Israel and the West Bank. For the past 20 years, he's taught interdisciplinary courses on peace studies here at Stanford. He's also served as a lecturer at the Stanford Law School, my home base, the School of Education, and the International Relations Program. Uh, and also contributing to the mystery of Byron, he received uh, his undergraduate degree in industrial engineering, of course, fitting completely with the profile of Presbyterian minister and peacemaker. Um, and he received his MA in social ethics and a master's of divinity degree from the San Francisco Theological Seminary. And then right next to me here is our, uh, our ringer from out of town. Uh, it's a pleasure to invite uh, to our campus from uh, the Center on International Cooperation at New York University, uh, my friend uh, Bruce Jones. Uh, he is a research professor of politics and the director of this Center on International Cooperation at NYU. He's got extensive involvement in UN uh, peacekeeping and political reconciliation efforts. In 2003 to 2004, he served as the deputy research director for the UN high-level panel on threats, challenges, and change. He also worked as deputy to the special advisor to the Secretary General and supported the Assistant Secretary General for strategic planning on negotiations and security issues in connection with the enlarger freedom reform effort at the UN uh, between 2004 and 2005. And if, if I were not a kind person, I would ask him how that turned out. Um, <laughs> during this period, Bruce was the acting secretary of the Secretary General's Policy Committee. Um, perhaps more uh, particularly relevant to our immediate topic today, from 2000 to 2002, 
Bruce was the Chief of Staff to the UN's Special Coordinator for the Middle East Peace Process. He's also been a member of the UN's advanced mission in Kosovo and of the planning team for the UN Transitional Administration in East Timor. So basically, wherever there's been problems, kind of Bruce has been involved. Um, if he comes to your town, you have to be a little anxious about what's in store. <laughs> he previously served in the policy division of the UN Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, where he led work on post-conflict policy. So that's the panel. That's the team. Now, what are we going to do today? We've agreed to discuss uh, the question uh, with you of barriers to conflict resolution in the Middle East and what must be overdone to uh, what must be done to overcome them. Now, it turns out. Uh, that we're not the only people um, who are thinking about this issue. Last month, a bipartisan group of foreign policy experts led by such luminaries as Zbigniew Brzezinski, Lee Hamilton, Carla Hills, Nancy, Nancy Kessebaum-Baker, Tom Pickering, Brett Scowcroft, um, sent a letter to President Bush and Secretary Rice about the Middle East peace process, uh, about the conference that's going to be held in Annapolis later this month. The letter was actually published uh, in November 8th in the New York Review of Books. Now, the letter notes, we actually chose one particular phrase here. This is actually, yeah, so we'll. So the letter notes that the Middle East is mired in its uh, worst crisis in years, right? It's hard to imagine when the Middle East was not mired in a crisis, right? I've always been kind of struck um, when I used to work in the State Department myself. Anytime a China issue came up, the memo would always begin by saying that U.S.-Chinese relationships are now at an all-time low, right? And I kept thinking, like, yeah, but we've been saying that for 15 years, right? <laughs> um, but in any event, uh, the letter from Brzezinski et al. says that the Middle East is mired in its worst crisis in years, and it states that a positive outcome of the conference, the Middle East con the conference to be held in Annapolis, could play a critical role in stemming the rising tide of instability and violence. It notes, as the previous slide shows, that the failure at the conference risks devastating consequences in the region and beyond, and thus it is critically important for the conference to succeed. Accordingly, the authors of this letter urge that the conference should focus on the, I'm quoting, should focus on the end game and endorse the contours of a permanent peace. Right? The letter says that if the parties of the conflict cannot themselves reach the contours of such an agreement, the international community sponsors of the conference, the quartet, should essentially propose a solution that embodies the following elements. And they're really kind of the ones there under subheading one, the, those bullets that we see at the top. Two states based on the 1967 line with minor reciprocal one-to-one -one swaps. Jerusalem uh, as the home to two capitals with Jewish neighborhoods falling under Israeli sovereignty and Arab neighborhoods under Palestinian sovereignty. Special arrangements for the old city providing that each side will control uh, access to the respective holy places. A solution to the refugee problem that is consistent with a two-state solution that addresses the Palestinian refugees' deep sense of injustice as well as providing them with meaningful financial compensation and resettlement assistance. And finally, security mechanisms that address Israeli concerns while respecting uh, Palestinian sovereignty. Now, what's interesting, right, what's really interesting about this proposed solution is that, well, there's nothing interesting about it, right, in the sense that there's absolutely nothing new here, right? This is essentially, in rough terms, the solution that has been on the table for decades, right? If you really go back to Resolution 242 after the Six-Day War, uh, UN Security Council Resolution 338, the Clinton parameters of 2000, the 2002 Arab Peace Initiative, right, the 2003 Roadmap, all of them roughly involve a solution with these basic elements. Right? A solution along these lines, in fact, seems reasonable, in fact, almost obvious to outsiders. And I think it's fair to say that a solution along these lines would make both parties better off than they would be by continuing to fight. In other words, in economic terms, a solution along these lines would be efficient, right? or even, dare I say, Pareto optimal. Right? And yet, and yet, the parties <laughs> to the conflict have demonstrated a steadfast inability to reach a peace agreement along uh, these lines. And here at SEICN, the Stanford Center on International and Conflict and Negotiation, we're interested in understanding why. Right? Why is it that uh, parties are unable to achieve what ought to be an efficient uh, resolution to a conflict that would make them better off than continuing to fight? What are the barriers to resolving a conflict such as the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and what strategies, if any, are available to help overcome those barriers. So with that set up, I'd like to turn uh, the discussion over to Lee, 
who will talk about some of the work that he's done, in particular in the field of social psychology, identifying some of the interpersonal dynamics that create barriers to conflict resolution. Okay, well, thanks, Alan. Uh, there is something ironic about Alan's introduction because our center uh, actually came into existence or really got into the business of being concerned with the Palestinian-Israeli conflict when we were asked to provide political cover for a meeting between uh, basically Peace Now and the uh, leading Palestinian Authority figures at a time when that was not legal. And we uh, agreed to do this, provided that we were really full partners in the process. And they produced, and this is pre-Oslo, and signed a document that had exactly, exactly the elements uh, that Alan outlined. So our center has always been, as Alan said, concerned with what are the barriers that stand in the way of achieving agreements that serve the interests of both sides. And we study uh, some barriers that you can think of as structural, something about the nature of the situation, some barriers that are strategic that have to do with folks trying to uh, get the better of the other in a negotiation. But our particular forte and, our, and certainly the, for, the uh, focus of my own research has been on so-called uh, psychological uh, barriers. So this cartoon uh, uh, that Byron has up, uh, I think, vividly makes the point and says that for those of you who uh, you know, have read lots of books on negotiation, they tell you about all the things that you should be doing in order to come up with a win-win solution, solution that makes both parties better off. And the Middle East situation is uh, importantly characterized by the fact that that isn't the problem. The problem isn't coming up with, a, with an agreement that, uh, that, that works. It isn't even the problem of coming up with a road map. It's how do you move along the road? How do you get from here to there? Uh, in my uh, own work, we sometimes joke and say that uh, since we work both in the real world and we do laboratory research and field research, uh, that my goal is to show that what we learn from the real world, what's true in practice, is also possible in theory and demonstrable in research. Uh, and uh, uh, that interplay uh, between theory, research, and real world experience that, that Byron will talk a little more about our kind of continuing dialogue with practitioners and our own uh, efforts uh, have been characteristic. So, Byron, okay. So here's a, a quote that's a kind of interesting quote about cycle. Uh It's a quote that goes back to uh, Anwar Sadat uh, when he dramatically appeared before the Israeli Knesset. I'll say a little more about that meeting later, I hope. Uh, and he makes this interesting statement that beyond uh, all the other problems, that means the objective interest, there is this wall. And he says this wall is 70% of the problem. Funny number. Uh, not, not half, not three quarters, 70% exactly. And he says, through my visit to you, I asked, why don't we uh, destroy this barrier? Well, that's what we study, this barrier, only because we're researchers who have to get grants and do things like that. It's not one barrier. It's a, a number of barriers. And uh, we're just going to talk. I'm just going to briefly mention a few. And one thing I want to do is I want to give you one sample of what a research, a piece of research looks like, and then, and then uh, again, put a similar list on and give you one sample of what it means to look at the real world and say, hmm, how does this stack up to our research? So here are psychological barriers to dispute resolution. Some of them are, uh, I didn't get a t starting time, Byron. Uh, some of them are pretty obvious. Uh, the failure to recognize common ground, this uh, illusion that whatever is good for them uh, has to be bad for us. So if they, if they like it, if they want it, we ain't, we're not signing on. Dissonance regarding past sacrifices, that it's very hard to uh, end a a conflict. You've told yourself stories as to why you have to maintain the conflict. Your side is, uh, is uh, on the side of God or right. Uh, you've made tremendous sacrifices. Whatever those stories are that allow you to sustain a conflict, be, get in the way when you want to try and solve it. Uh, insistence on justice, fairness, equity. We'll talk a little more about that uh, in our discussion here. The point is simply that it's a lot easier to get people to agree on a solution that makes them both be better off than on one that they both regard as fair, one that gives uh, appropriate weight to the legitimacy of each other's claims. Uh, diverging views of past events, 
the consequences of naive realism. This just says that folks just typically believe that the way they see things are the way they really are, and exactly to the extent that anyone disagrees with them about the way things really are, the problem is them. And we're not going to solve the problem until they start seeing things the way they really are, that is to say, the way I see them. So those are all interesting and uh, much studied barriers. The last one is the one that I want to illustrate. It's a little more uh, interesting and a little more uh, non-obvious. It's called reactive devaluation or reactance. And it says basically that parties uh, have a difficult reaching agreements because as soon as a table, as soon as an offer is put on the table, uh, 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 it becomes less attractive. Something that you would have liked, that would have seemed pretty good before it was put on the table, comes to be seen as less attractive when it's actually put on the table, especially if it's put there by the other side. And one of the reasons for that is that, is that deals typically have some combination of things you gain and things you lose, and the things you lose come to seem really important, and the things you gain seem to come to seem as less important. So what does this look like in a, in a piece of research? Not just yet, but... So we did a, an interesting field study that I think combines the kind of low cunning of social psychology and the kind of high purpose of the Stanford Center. Uh, and so we uh, went to Israelis and Palestinians during the post-Oslo negotiations during the so-called first phase. And we looked at the actual proposals that were being put on the table. And we asked uh, uh, Israelis, these are business school students, but they're all veterans. They all deeply care about the situation. They've all fought uh, you know, in these various wars, many of them in special forces. And we said, we want you to, to look at this deal and tell us how good, it is, how good it is for you and how good it is for the other side. But because we're low cunning social psychologists, we manipulated something. For half, we told them that the offer was the Israeli offer, and for half, we told them it was the Palestinian <laughs> offer. And then we next took a Palestinian offer that came a week later and said, how do you feel about this one? And again, we manipulated for half of was called the Palestinian offer and half the Israeli offer. And the data tell a, a sad but important story. So if we look at that, we look at the actual Israeli proposal of uh, 1993 in uh, May, and we see how it's rated when it's an Israeli proposal versus when it's a Palestinian proposal, and we see something very very obvious. Israelis like the proposal better when they think it's their, their side's proposal than when they think it's the other side's proposal. But what's pretty dramatic in that picture is they like the other side's proposal when it's attributed to them more than they like their own proposal <laughs> when it's attributed uh, to the other side. That's a pretty difficult problem since under the best of circumstances, the offer that the other side is going to put on the table would be the one that your side would put on the table. And uh, then we see the full magnitude of the problem when we actually look at Palestinian ratings. Uh, that should be the next one. We add that. These are Arab Israelis. These are not, these are, these are Arab Israelis and they're rating them. And they show the same phenomenon, basically. They think that the proposal is better for Israel when it comes from Israel, when it comes from the Palestinians. That's not surprising. But notice something scary there. And that is, Israelis think all the proposals are relatively bad for them and good for the other side. Palestinians think, regardless of how it's labeled, it's pretty good for the Israelis and not very good for them. So that's just an example of what a piece of research uh, looks like. I'm curious to see what the next slide is. Uh, so how do you overcome React evaluation and uh, various other barriers, and we're not going to talk about that today uh, very much. Uh, this is laboratory research and uh, like, but there are various ki interesting kinds of, of manipulations. One question is: Does insight, does knowing all the things that we know about barriers to conflict resolution, does that help? Or to put it a little differently, when you begin to attribute these barriers not to something about the perfidious nature of the other side, but because the other side are human beings who show the same psychological processes and biases that other people do, including you, does that help? Uh, so, so you make a more situational attribution. That's a question. There's a lot to be said about the role of the third parties. Fostering positive attributions, an important role for mediators and an important role in any conflict is to answer a question. When an offer is put on the table, you say, why this offer? Why now? And if you don't come up with a good answer to that question, people will come up with a bad answer. 
because it's no good, and they know it's no good, or they're not going to honor it. So it's very important to produce a positive attribution. They're, they're making this proposal now because for the first time they realize something they never realized before. They're making this offer now because the, the, uh, the crisis is, is biting so deeply that they have to do something about it, and we can go through others. And finally, creating optimism or sense of inevitability. To some extent, what the problem with all Middle Eastern negotiations is that they're done in a spirit where people expect them to fail. They have always failed. And I just want to contrast that with something easy, like the election of a pope, uh, logic, or the passing of the federal budget. Log you can think of lots of reasons why that should be impossible to do, but it always succeeds. And I want to argue that one of the reasons it succeeds is that um, when offers are put on the table and compromises are made, they're attributed not to something bad, but to the fact that the other side realizes we have to reach an agreement. Okay, uh, getting a little breathless. Lessons from the real world. Uh, we could talk about any number of these. These are all things that have come up in our own work. Uh, so the importance of intergroup conflict. Uh, in our experience, uh, conflicts uh, that appear very difficult almost always reflect the fact that there's disagreement going on behind the table rather than at the table, that the parties aren't united uh, in what they want. The importance of relationship building and helping each side deal with spoilers. These are all going to be topics I hope we get into in discussion. The futility of trying to convince people what they can't afford to understand. I can't tell you how much time Israelis waste trying to explain to Palestinians how the whole problem is their fault. <laughs> and how much time Palestinians wait exp explaining to Israel why they have no legitimate right to be there. That's, a, that's an argument that neither side can afford to understand, much less uh, accept. Uh, the importance of transparency of loss, the importance of tipping points, the tension between the desire for peace and the demands uh, uh, for uh, justice. Uh, which one shall we talk about? Well, let me say something about, about tipping points, because I think that's a kind of interesting one. Uh, Byron mentions we, one of the things that our center does, it puts us in contact with a lot of people who spend time in prison. That just <laughs> comes with the territory. And uh, a particular guy, a very articulate uh, guy, just recently passed away, who was a member of the Belfast City Council, uh, not too much earlier, had been a bomber. And he had done time uh, in prison, in a British prison for bombing. And like many of the people who were most involved in the peace process in Ireland, he, that's, that's where he actually became committed. And uh, in a talk, something like this, uh, he was talking a little bit about his life before and his life after. And one of the nice young women in the audience, very idealistically, asked him, well, uh, Davy, tell me about your personal transformation, about your journey from uh, bomber to peace activist. And uh, Davey would have none of it. He like, says, well, sometimes it's just a matter of 51% versus 49%. That uh, when I was a bomber, I had a lot of ambivalence about that. I wasn't certain it was the right way to go. I wasn't certain it was the right, way, the right thing to do. Uh, but on balance, I thought we wouldn't succeed any other way. Uh, but let me tell you something. Once you're a bomber, you can't be 51% a bomber. You have to become 100% bomber. And when I became a peace activist, when I things changed a little bit, a little more optimism, then I, I went the, uh, the other way and I became 100% a peace activist. So too much of the time, and this ties into very basic psychological theory, we think that what's required is these huge personal transformations in people. And very often what's required is just that little bit that moves them from thinking the situation is hopeless to maybe there's some hope. Uh, have I got another minute? Take another minute. Okay, so uh, what's an example of this? And I'll tell you a fairly dramatic story about this. Uh, again, at one of our talks, uh, we had a uh, Palestinian uh, speaker who was one of the founders of the Popular Front for Liberation of Palestine, had been a terrorist, uh, or certainly had been the theorist for a uh, terrorist organization and really uh, would have been on the most wanted list, I think it's fair to say. Uh, and uh, he gave a talk, and he was now talking about the dimensions of the peace process, and he now has, was 
absolutely committed to nonviolent and peaceful process and laid out just about the same plan that uh, Alan laid out before, saying it was obvious and this is what we had to do, and being rather brave, being willing to be forthright and saying by that, that ambiguous provision uh, about refugees, that means that refugees, the right to return, will be recognized in the Palestinian, the new Palestinian state. What else could it mean? There's, you know, what, what, there's nothing. Where are they going to return to? Parking lots? Uh, pla uh, shopping plazas? Highways? It's all, it's all unrealistic. So, and, but very forthright. And uh, when he was all done with his talk, uh, one of the people in the audience, a very fine man, a psychiatrist, said to him, do you think that there's been history uh, on the part of Americans, and particularly the American Jewish community, too much talking about the Holocaust, too much emphasis on that event, and not enough talking about the Nakba, about the tragedy suffered by the Palestinian people, or the catastrophe, I guess is a good translation. And uh, this guy, his name is Waleed, walked up to the person who asked the question as close as I am to Walter and looked at him and said, essentially, are you crazy? <coughs> he didn't say that. But he just looked at him and said, are you crazy? He said that the Nakba was a terrible event. It was really a catastrophe for the Palestinians. But the Holocaust was an event that was unprecedented. It's, it's a defining event of the 20th century. Don't ever compare those. And the effect on the audience was really dramatic. He had made no concession. He hadn't said anything about the terms that were different, but you could feel that something dramatic had happened in the audience. They said, gee, if, if that can be said, then maybe we can concede that the Nakba really was a tragedy and that whatever deliverance of the founding of the State of Israel provided for Israelis, it was a catastrophe for individual Palestinians and Palestinians who weren't responsible. Uh, this nine-year-old, this 12-year-old this, uh, girl. These people were not responsible. And uh, so one of the things we've learned is how important it is to have dialogue, and particularly the kind of dialogue where people hear things that they've never heard before, and better still, hear things that they never expected to hear. It doesn't have to be about the terms of agreement. It just has to be something that makes that kind of connection. Okay. I'm going to pick up from where Lee uh, ended, and Lee told you two stories that have emerged out of the conversations that we have with practitioners in the real world. And those conversations are, are long. They extend over years. Uh, the ones that I've been having in Northern Ireland are in their 15th year. Uh, but we carry these out over a long period of time, and, and they focus on two questions. The question is, what would practitioners find really interesting if they knew everything that researchers knew? And what would researchers find very interesting if they knew everything the practitioners knew? And we try to look at the interface of those two interests and come up with different kinds of strategies about how you might overcome the kind of barriers that Lee has talked about. I want to talk some about those strategies, but I also want to put them in the context of a real conversation that we had uh, 7 o'clock in the morning Saturday when we got a frantic call from One Voice Israel and One Voice Palestine about some problems. He means this Saturday. I mean this Saturday. First, let me say something about the strategies we use for overcoming those uh, uh, boundaries, and I'm going to be criminally brief about this, because each one of these questions has long kinds of subcategories and conversations that we have, but we don't have time for that, so I'm going to try to lay them out in the briefest kind of way. The, the most fundamental questions that the parties have to address is the shared futures question. And that is, are the parties willing to envision a future for the other side that, if, that it, the other side, would find minimally bearable? And let me emphasize that, that a vision of a shared future is not the same thing as a shared vision of the future. A shared vision of the future is that you agree about the future. A vision of a shared future tends to where is the other in the things that I aspire to, the things that I want? Are they there in a way that is acceptable to them? So then unless I hear when you talk about your dreams and aspirations for you and your community and your family, a place for me, a place for me that I said, you know, if that future came about, I could bear that. I could live with that. And vice versa, not much is going to happen. And in fact, this is so fundamental, we call it the peace question. <coughs> The second question is the question of trustworthiness. And it's how can the parties demonstrate through word and deed that something has changed? 
So how do you believe these people that they're actually committed to that future? Up until this time, they've always maintained that they couldn't and wouldn't do the concessions that needed to move us forward. They wouldn't take this path. And now they're telling us they're going to do it. They're going to do it voluntarily. They're going to do it without the threat of violence. What makes me believe that they're going to do that? And so the parties have to begin in different kind of ways to come up with strategies to demonstrate to the other side that they're actually committed to that. Some of that you heard in the kinds of conversations that Lee talked about. Thirdly, the question of loss. How can the parties come to accept the losses that a settlement imposes so that they can, they can make the concessions that it requires? Both parties are going to look at that agreement and say that it gives us nothing and requires us to make all the painful concessions. It gives to the other side everything that they wanted and requires nothing of them. Now, part of that is because they don't think that any of the concessions the other side made were legitimate concessions. They hadn't a legitimate claim on them anyway. It's what a reasonable person would have given up. And so now what additionally are they going to do? But until people are able to embrace those kinds of losses that this is going to impose, they're not going to be able to do the concessions that's necessary to reach that agreement. And finally, the question of just entitlement, which we can sometimes call the buzzsaw, which is how can the parties work together to alleviate the most egregiouses, and I left out the word injustice there. Every peace agreement is going to impose injustices on both of the parties. It's a negotiated agreement. They don't agree about what justice is. They disagree fundamentally about that. So therefore, whatever we come up with is going to be some combinations of concessions and agreement. And the real question is, is this peace worth these enduring these injustices? But we can lessen that for the party if we come together and try to work. How can we make that agreement, if not more just, less unjust? And so those are the kinds of strategies that we think move the process forward. So now I want to, back wrong way. So now I want to talk a little bit with about One Voice. Uh, one Voice was an organization composed of two uh, uh, elements. Uh, one was One Voice Israel, one is One Voice Palestine. Uh, they emerged after the post-Oslo, uh, post-Taba uh, uh, Intifada era, uh, when everything was, the violence was increasing, polarization was taking place. And they said, we need to give voice to the large majority of Israeli and Palestinians that support a two-state solution. Now, One Voice had, as one of the people who helped put this together, Nicole Argo. And Nicole Argo was a fellow at SCICN and was also my TA in Peace Studies. And so she brought much of the work that we had been doing into the formulation of how they would begin to give voice to, these, to this kind of support for a two-state solution. But what we have been saying, at least since the last year and a half, when we held a week-long conference with One Voice and One Palestine about how do you, what are the strategies you need to move this forward, is that you need to be aware that this agreement at the level of what Alan put up earlier about the, uh, that was in the uh, um, letter uh, by Brzezinski et al., uh, where there's agreement at that level, if you begin to go down under that, look under that, you're going to uncover really deep disagreement about the, about the details of that. And you need to be aware of that. So as soon as it gets you try to be specific about what that agreement is, you're going you're to begin to get deep division, divisions and polarization. Recently, uh, uh, the leaders of One Voice Israel, a Palestine, have been viciously attacked by extreme groups. Uh, there was an intended rally in, uh, it was going to be jointly in Tel Aviv and in Ramallah. The, uh, um, the one in Ramallah was not able to come ab about. Um, I can't really divulge all the circumstances, but it involved a great deal of corruption and different things, but, it but the guys turned the, the extreme leaders on them. And so they have since then been under tremendous criticism. And one voice was asking us, what do you do? What when do we do? When you're accused of being when a traitor. When you're accused of this. How, how do we respond to this? And so we gave them some, some advice about how it is that they might begin to be supportive of the Palestinian leaders in one voice, Israel. But we also said, why don't you use this time as an opportunity to reassess uh, your strategy, to look at what it, what it is that you're doing. And instead of pushing this one state, our agreement on the one state solution, why don't you begin to focus on what are the barriers that stand in the way of, of the parties reaching that and endorsing that. 
And so we wanted the Palestinians and Israeli in separate groups to begin to deal with the kinds of questions that we raise in the strategies. So we said, that, you know, in order to get to this agreement, the Palestinians are going to have to understand that they aren't going to get a viable state unless the Israelis think that getting a viable state means peace. I mean, currently the Israelis think we give them a viable state, and then we find out whether we can work with that state or not, whether there's going to be peace. So you Palestinians need to understand that, and you're not going to get the state until you convince the Israelis that getting that state means that this is really peace, the conflict is over. Peace is going to happen after this. And the Israelis need to, need to focus on the fact that they aren't going to get peace unless the Palestinians think that they're going to get a viable state. Uh, they may uh, offer a settlement, they may find a way to manage it, but they aren't going to get something that looks like a stable peace until, in fact, the Palestinians get something that they can live with, which is a viable state. Secondly, we said we, we thought the parties should begin to communicate uh, how they are committed to doing the things that they've always said they could not do. So you say that we, we are uh, committed, we understand that the Israelis aren't, we aren't, the Palestinians aren't going to get a state until the Israelis feel that that means peace. How would we as Palestinians begin to demonstrate that we understand that and that we have a commitment to making the achievement of this viable state mean peace? Uh, same thing on the Israeli side. The next two questions are, bring up a, a factor that is often overlooked, which is humiliation and that the, uh, the issues involved in those last two have deep asymmetries, the deep asymmetries about powerlessness, the deep asymmetries about injury, about the sense of being defeated. And so they need to be postponed a bit until there can be a, a greater sense of what this is about and what the outcomes of this, uh, this process are going to be. But ultimately, you're going to have to deal with the question of loss. Uh, both sides feel that, this, as I said, the settlement requires them to give that. Uh, but um, they have to understand that their uh, narratives delegitimate the losses of the other side. The, the, the Palestinians are going to lose. Uh, they're going to lose a great deal. Any peace agreement that even takes the uh, remote form of the ones Island had imposes incredible losses on the Palestinians. There's no comparable losses that that agreement poses on the Israelis. The Israelis are going to be uh, forced to undertake the risk of giving up control on the status quo. They're not going to be able to control exactly the spots in the way they do. They're not going to be able to be managed in exactly the same kind of way. And it's going to involve some risk that means they trust the Palestinians. But there's no comparable kind of, of risk and loss in that as it is to the Palestinians of saying what that <coughs> settlement's going to impose then. So one of the important things that happens is the Israelis need to find ways to demonstrate to the Palestinians that they understand and appreciate the costs that this agreement is going to pose upon them. And finally, there is the problem of the just entitlement, and that is because the legitimacy of this state uh, settlement depends not upon it being just, but upon it being un unbearably unjust uh, to both parties. And this question is going to be particularly important when it comes to the right of return of, of Palestinian refugees, uh, because again, there's not going to be a comparable injustice posed on the Palestinians and Israelis. Then it's not. Okay, you got my sense. On that anyway. And so that has to be taken with. But there is a sense of how can we work together to alleviate and ameliorate the injustices that attend the refugee issue. Let me say one thing that we oftentimes say that, that, that the real question that people have to, have to deal with is does this, uh, um, does this piece, uh, is, is it of a quality, is it of a, uh, of, of a benefit such that we're willing to intolerate those, those injustices? We sometimes say to our colleagues that, do you get you know, justice from your family? Well, not really. Do you get it from your community, full justice? No, not really. Uh, yet, why do you expect it from those who are your sworn enemies? So it's going to have to, in some sense, be embraced of how we begin to try to lessen those things that uh, it impacts. Great. Bruce. So let me just tee up. Bruce, we've been focusing in these two presentations on uh, essentially a series of bilateral uh, or barriers that exist in the relations between the disputing parties, uh, but there can and, and but there can also be significant barriers that are occasioned by the role of outside factors or presences or influences on the conflict. And uh, my friend Bruce, I think, is going to uh, help us situate uh, some of the relationship of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict to the broader conflicts in the region and the kind of barriers that that also presents. 
Exactly. So thank you, Alan. Um, because if the question is, what are the barriers, what kinds of barriers exist to the resolution or the settlement of the Israeli-Palestinian issue, and how do we overcome them, I do think increasingly the answer is connect to or lie in the changing security dynamics and the changing political dynamics of the region as a whole. And I'll try to take the conversation back to where Alan started, which is the prospects for this upcoming peace conference in Annapolis at the end of the month. Uh, to cover the regional dynamics in slightly under 10 minutes is ambitious. Uh, what I'm going to do is uh, illustrate them by referring briefly to three, and if I have time, four uh, diplomatic meetings that brought into contact parties in the region with either U.S. or international diplomats to try to convey something of the flavor of the changing dynamics and its implications for the Israeli-Palestinian process. The first of the meetings was between Vice President Cheney and the King of uh, Jordan, King Hussein. This was in summer of 2002. This is at a moment when the United States was starting to build the diplomatic or trying to build the diplomatic support for overthrowing Saddam Hussein. And Cheney traveled through the region to explain to the Arab states what was going to be happening and to try to build support for the overthrow of Hussein. And one of his first meetings was with Hussein in Jordan. And a colleague of mine uh, spoke to the King shortly after and asked what, was the, what were the exchange of messages. And the king said, I told Cheney that if he's going to go to Baghdad, he'd better make sure to solve the Israeli-Palestinian issue first. Because if we take the lid off Iraq and Palestine is still burning, the region will be in flames and the existing order will be threatened. And what was the response? He paused and he said, I think what Cheney told me is that if I go with him to Baghdad, I'll get paid in shekels. In other words, the American position at the time was if the Arabs would support the overthrow of Iraq, in its aftermath, the United States would do the necessary to ensure Israeli concessions, to ensure an, Israel, uh, an, Ar an Israeli-Palestinian peace process. Of course, in the end, you didn't see a huge amount of Arab support to the war in Iraq. And more importantly, the aftermath of the first military victory was, as we all know, uh, a very messy, bloody, and even chaotic situation of violence and fighting in Iraq with sectarian, with civil, and with terrorist dimensions hopefully now diminishing somewhat, if, if Larry Diamond was right earlier. But the regional fallout from that situation in Iraq has been dramatic, and its implications are extremely important for the Israeli-Palestinian process. The regional fallout has a number of dimensions, but I'll highlight three. First, it has triggered a wave of anger against the United States in the region, a wave of sentiment of resentment against American presence in the region. It has always been the case that U.S. policy in the region has been unpopular. Now the U.S. is unpopular in the region at a popular level. Second, the situation in Iraq created an enormous opportunity for Iran. And as the insurgency in Iran deepened, Iran, sorry, in Iraq deepened, Iran saw an opportunity to do three things. First was to tie down the United States, which after all, from in their eyes, had threatened its uh, regime and had 120,000 troops on its border. Tie down the United States, extend its regional influence, and in the specific case of President Ahmadinejad, uh, to uh, build popular support for his position by standing up to the United States and by criticizing and defaming Israel, which has been extremely popular, or made him extremely popular in the Arab world, although not, interestingly enough, necessarily in Iran. The third thing that the uh, regional fallout from Iraq has done is it has created or fueled, I think given oil at $100 a barrel, fuel is the appropriate <laughs> term here, it has fueled a Shia resurgence. Across the region, Shia groups, which had been in the in the kind of had been in the recession of politics, so to speak, uh, have felt energized and enabled <laughs> to challenge the existing Sunni U.S.-backed order. Uh, newly established in power in Iraq, newly assertive and confidence in Iran, uh, forging networks across the region, operational, financial, and other. And the, what is interesting is you've seen the creation of networks across the region through this uh, Shia arc, so to speak, but actually also connections, operational and financial, between Shia radical groups and non-Shia radical groups who have a common tactical agenda of opposing the United States. So it's a complex mix of factors in play, but essentially a Shia resurgence or a renaissance uh, in the region. All of these factors came together in the summer of 2006, when for the first time ever, Hezbollah, Shia group in Lebanon, and Hamas in Gaza cooperated uh, to launch simultaneous or near simultaneous attacks on Israel, in both cases on Israel's northern and southern borders, succeeding in kidnapping IDF soldiers. Israel responded in the south by reoccupying Gaza, in the north by hitting Hezbollah positions inside Lebanon. 
uh, Hezbollah responded with rocket attacks on Israel, and this rapidly escalated into the summer 2006 war between Israel and Hezbollah that we watched last summer. This created then a regional and an international diplomatic crisis, and the Europeans took the lead in trying to call all the parties together to try to achieve a ceasefire. And that brings us to the second meeting, which was a Rome international conference hosted by the Italians to try to forge a ceasefire, bringing the Europeans, the Americans, the key Arab states, and the parties to this conference. And there were two things that were striking to me about the conference. The first was that in their public statements, every foreign minister in the room, other than Condi Rice, called for an immediate ceasefire. Condi said, actually, Israel has to be given time to destroy Hezbollah before we should impose a ceasefire. Uh, she used, I think, what has to be the least felicitous phrase in modern U.S. diplomacy when she referred to the violence as, quote, the birth pangs of the new Middle East. But that wasn't the most interesting thing about the meeting. The most interesting thing about the meeting is, having called publicly for a ceasefire, every single Arab foreign minister at that meeting used their private meetings with Condi and their private meetings with Secretary General Kofi Annan to say, under no circumstances should Israel be stopped before it has destroyed Hezbollah. Okay, so for me, it illustrated two things. First is a huge gulf between the positions and the policies of the governments in that region, the Sunni governments in that region, and popular political sentiment in the region, a huge gulf. And the second that we saw beginning in that meeting was the emergence of a new emerging alliance, a tactical alliance, not a, an alliance shared on, based on shared values or anything like it, but a tactical alliance that links the key Sunni Arab states with the United States and with Israel in an alliance to contain Iran, which the Sunni Arab states see as a deep and existential threat to their regimes and to their order. And that has occasioned some important changes in key Arab states' positions about Israel, hinting at the possibility of recognition if we can get an Israeli-Palestinian deal. Uh, in the Saudi case, reactivating the, what was known as the Saudi Peace Plan, which had all of these elements, but in, contained the incredibly important additional piece of potential Arab and Saudi recognition of Israel and normalization with Israel. And this uh, emergent alliance was sort of forged, in a sense, out of the violence of summer 2006. And that shift in the Arab politics is in turn what's creating space for the third meeting that I want to refer to, which is this upcoming meeting in Annapolis at the end of the, of the month, or at least in theory, at the end of the month, where Condi Rice is trying to call together the parties, Israeli and Palestinian, plus the key Arab states and other international actors, to see if they can now forge a new deal, or something shorter than a deal, at the very least an agreement in principle about some of its outlines, and a new process for moving forward. So the key question is, Will it succeed? Are we going to get a deal in Annapolis, or do we risk failure with its catastrophic consequences? Well, let's look at the lineup. Saudi Arabia has a deeply vested interest in it succeeding because from their perspective, they need now, they're in the same position as King Hussein was in 2002, they want to see a reduction in tensions in the Palestinian context because they're convinced that it's going to take military action against Iran to deal with Iran, and they don't want two fires burning simultaneously. Condi staked her personal prestige on this, and then add in Olmert, whose opinion writing polls are about 2% or something in that order, has zero political future unless he gets a deal. Uh, and Mohammed Abbas, Abu Mazen, has zero political future unless he can offer to the Palestinian people the realistic prospect of a Palestinian state in the near term. So all of the leaders going into Annapolis have a strong vested interest in a deal. And I think it's highly likely that a piece of paper will be signed in Annapolis. A piece of paper. The question is, is it a deal, and will it be implemented? There, let's look differently at the lineup. If we ask the question, who has the legitimacy, the popular support, the political muscle, uh, and the energy to mobilize the kind of alliances, legitimacy, and energy you need to implement or block, is it a weak Olmert, a weak Abbas, a Bush presidency in the final viable year of its, of its lifestyle, lifetime, sorry, uh, and Arab states who are completely out of touch with their popular uh, with, the, with their population's politics? Or is Iran, Hezbollah, Hamas, increasingly, I'm afraid, with Russian support, going to be able to block, and I think both figuratively and I fear literally, blow this up? Uh, I'm afraid that I'm not overly optimistic on that score. But a reason I wanted to refer to a fourth meeting is I don't like talking about the Middle East and ending on a pessimistic note. I think you should try to end on an optimistic <laughs> note. And I'm going to do that by casting back again to 2002 and to a different meeting that happened at around the same time in 2002. That was a meeting between myself and some colleagues with Shlomo Ben-Ami, 
who had been the foreign minister and then the chief negotiator in the Taba talks with, dealt with the Clinton parameters, which for the record came within a hair's breadth of reaching a deal on, this, on, those, on, on those principles. And Shlomo was reflecting in its aftermath about whether or not the kinds of barriers that Lee and Byron described can be <coughs> overcome and what are the kinds of historical processes that lead to them being overcome in the, in the Middle East context. And he said this, he said, look, you have to be optimistic. In 1997, if you'd walked into this building, this is in the Knesset, he said, if you'd walked into this building and you said there's going to be eventually a Palestinian state, I might not have thrown you out of my office, but pretty much every office you would have been thrown out of the building. 2002, we all know there'll be a Palestinian state. Some of us like it, some of us don't. We all know there'll be a Palestinian state. It's okay. Now, tell me it's the 67 borders and I'll throw you out of my office right now. But come back in five years. Barriers can be overcome. And I do think we'll see in Annapolis a deal which will set out at least the parameters of a deal. I don't think it's going to be implemented. But having that piece of paper come out of Annapolis should, I hope, lead to renewed political engagement by the United States and other parties in the region, uh, <coughs> potentially under a new administration. And I remain optimistic that a deal can, in fact, be done. And there. So, we uh, should, Susan, we should maybe this is a good time to reiterate the Sadat, the famous Sadat quote that I said at the beginning when just a few people were here. Sadat said, the tragedy of the Middle East is that peace is impossible, but the good news is that it's inevitable. <laughs> so uh, what I did not disclose about my colleague uh, Bruce is that he's, um, uh, he's actually a Canadian national, but this great kind of optimism with which he concludes makes me think that he's really embracing American sensibility. Uh, <laughs> it's a, it's a great thing. I spent 11 years in the, uh, as a diplomat working for the State Department, as a lawyer working for the State Department. And, and again, our, our, you know, my attitude was there's not a conflict we can't solve. If you just lock people in the room and you, and, you, and you tell no one gets to go to the bathroom until we solve the solution, <laughs> we can agree on anything. So uh, welcome on board, please. <laughs> okay, so there's some time for you. Uh, it's the end of a long day. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.